Welcome to Talk About Talk with Dr. Andrea. In this podcast, we will learn about all things communication. Listen as Dr. Andrea and the experts she interviews share their expertise. Let's do this. Let's talk about talk. Hey there. Welcome to Talk About Talk. I am Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. You can call me Andrea. Today's podcast focuses on coaching. For this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Stephanie Rudnick. Amongst her many roles, Stephanie is the founder of Elite Camps, one of Canada's largest basketball organizations. So the focus here is on sports coaching. But it will be quite evident that Stephanie's insights transcend other domains. Certainly, there are many occupations where coaching is evident. Maybe you're a life coach, a counselor or therapist, a financial planner, a fitness trainer, a nutritionist, a tutor or a teacher... These occupations all clearly require coaching skills. But coaching skills are also necessary for anyone who is a manager or a boss. And yes, even for a parent. So listen in. This week, I'm going to let our guest do more of the talking. Of course, I still get to ask the questions. But this week, I'm going to share my research learnings with you separately in the Talk About Talk newsletter blog. Please sign up for it. Just go to talkabouttalk.com and click sign up for the email newsletter now, or go to the blog tab and sign up there. Every week, you will receive one short and concise summary of what I'm thinking and talking about. This week, it'll be all about coaching. So let me briefly share with you a few of the learnings from the interview. Then I'll introduce Stephanie. I'll start with a quote from Stephanie. She says, you're going to have an impact if you care. And you can show kids you care by showing up every single week and just doing your best. They will likely learn either because of you or perhaps in spite of you. Okay, that might be daunting, but here are some coaching lessons that I pulled out of the interview that I think might really help. First, leave your ego out of coaching. It's not easy, but it's critically important. Two, be consistent. Choose your rules and stick with them. Three, Don't forget that we learn more from the ups and downs than we do from the wins. This seems obvious, but we don't always remember that in the heat of the moment, do we? Four, don't play favorites. A common mistake, but a debilitating one. And last, two things for parents. One, stop being a helicopter parent and start letting your child advocate for herself. Frankly, too many parents are scaring the good coaches away. Of course, you can coach your child on how to advocate for themselves, but let your child do their own talking. You don't want your child to grow up to be the employee who doesn't know how to advocate for himself, right? And also for parents, your kids don't want to hear about your glory days. They want to hear about your defeats. It's probably the same for stories your subordinates want to hear. As Stephanie says, they want to hear about when a coach yelled at me or threw a chair at me or when my teammates were rude or not nice. They want to hear about that. That's probably true, right? Think of the resilience you're teaching when you share your epic fails. Now, let me introduce Stephanie. Stephanie spent four years playing for the Women's Varsity Blues basketball team at the University of Toronto. Her team captured two provincial titles and a silver medal at the 1996 Canadian University National Championships. In her final season with the Blues, Stephanie was named an Ontario University All-Star. She graduated from the University of Toronto with a physical and health education degree and is a level two 
and CCP certified coach. After graduating, Stephanie shifted her energies to improving the skills of Canadian basketball players. In 1999, Stephanie created Elite Camps to achieve this goal. And by the way, Elite is an acronym that stands for Excellence Lies in the Effort. That says a lot, doesn't it? Under Stephanie's leadership, Elite Camps has become one of the largest basketball organizations of its kind in Canada, serving 4,000 athletes annually. She also runs a charity called Swish for the Cure to raise funds for Childhood Cancer Canada. So, Stephanie is now a busy and successful business owner. She's the chair of the board of the Ontario Basketball Association. She's a motivational speaker and an author of several books, including Game Plan 2.0, The Little Ballers of the World Series, and Life is a Sport. Oh, and she's also a wife and dedicated mother of three amazing boys. And yes, they all play basketball. I should tell you that booking this interview was quite a coup. You might be interested to hear that we conducted this interview in the hallway of a high school, as far away as we could get from the pounding basketballs in the gymnasium. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us today. My pleasure. Very excited. Let's start at a general level. What makes for a great coach? Whether you've played or not is neither here nor there. Being a good coach means you have a passion for the sport and you want to pass it on. Not just the skills, but the life lessons that go with it. I've had a, a multitude of different coaches and some of them have played and some of them haven't. Mm. And um, I've received different gifts from each of them, whether they're really you know, proficient at teaching basic level skill or just a resource to help me connect to a university coach. You receive different things from different coaches. I've never experienced that perfect coach, um, but if I could design one myself, it would be somebody who could blend the skills with the life lessons and team culture all into one. So someone who applies the messages um, to a real life context. Uh, And is consistent, like they have rules and they will consistently follow it. Um, You know, having a great blend of wanting to win, but also be able to be consistent enough for the player to be able to teach that life lesson that may hurt the team in that moment, but in the long run helps the athlete develop for the rest of their life. So now I'm actually hearing maybe four things. There's the ability to extrapolate to real life. There's being consistent. There's a strong desire to win. But then there's also, I guess, balancing that desire to win with a development mentality. Absolutely. I I think uh, if I could give an example of what I've read about some of the best coaches, one that would stand out would be a John Wooden and all of his teachings. So a John Wooden, he was really big on... uh, all those life lessons and being consistent for his players he was known for like leaving kids you know at the gym his star players if they were late for uh, a game he would just leave them and that would be the best life lesson they would never ever show up late again and the team was pretty impressed obviously with them leaving their star players behind and willing to lose a game in order to teach that life lesson to those athletes those are the best kinds of coaches you know a lot of coaches will say that you don't get to play if you don't have good grades or if your parents say you're not doing well in school, but very few are actually willing to sit their star players down in fear of losing because of whether that's ego or, you know, not willing to disappoint the rest of the team. Right. Well, fear of losing the game or potentially even fear of losing the player, I can understand. There's a lot of pressure. And ego. There's a lot of ego ego. for losing. So So that's another part of being a good coach is putting your ego aside. Absolutely. Yeah. 
that translates, think about any leader in any great company, right? right? They're willing to put the we before the me. Right. And that's really, for a team atmosphere, that's great. And for team culture, when you're willing to you know, create rules and actually adhere to them and force your players to, that's, I think, the best learning of all. So we're asking an awful lot. It's like it's almost like uh, going up Maslow's hierarchy or all the way up to self-actualization. You're, we're really asking for someone to be and, incredibly yeah. confident and yeah. self-actualized. Most of the time it's for a volunteer coach, which is an interesting place to be when you're volunteering your time. And most people are just human and imperfect. Let's start moving a little bit more into communication. At least you said to me once, and I quote, one of my favorite things to do is to tie absolutely everything learned in sport to how you can use it in, to be more successful in life. And I know, Stephanie, this is the premise of your book, Life is a Sport. Can you tell us a bit about that, that link between sport and life lessons? Do we, ha do we have enough time? I, I could talk <laughs> about that forever. Uh, yeah, um, and this is something that I want to say I, I knew the whole time I played sport, but it's definitely something I fell into much later in life. I didn't really realize I would say until 10 years into my business did I actually figure any of that out. Um, I realized uh, many of my successes came from my learnings in sport and when I actually sat down to write my book um, and put pen to paper and tried to come up with 101 life lessons learned through sport, it, uh, it took me a few minutes to get started, but then it just, it wouldn't stop. Like everything wow. I could see, it was I almost, I can just imagine, yeah, an was, epiphany almost, yeah, right? Yeah, and I don't know if you've seen the movie The Matrix, where like all of a sudden, like everything just turns green and he sees everything in code. But right. now every time somebody tells me a story about something that happens to their child in sport, or, you know, there's an entrepreneur who's trying to fight through some kind of hardship, I can literally relate to an experience in sport and how, you know, you can work through it um, or if you're an athlete, figure out how that struggle will turn out and help them later in life. So it's a, it's a really interesting realization to be able to see it through a new lens. I really enjoy it. Well, just so you know, from a very wise man that I know, a Harvard professor who I actually interviewed for another podcast interview, he told me maybe 15 years ago, 16 years ago, we we're talking about metaphors, and he said it's actually a sign of intelligence to be able to apply learnings from one context to another. So there you go, oh, highly intelligent. Know. And then Very you did it good. in a systematic way and you're sharing it. Yeah, and I, I think um, I didn't know going through it. I think I was living experiences yeah. and uh, it became really apparent when people kept asking me, you know, what's the secret to success? You know, that's after 10 years and that's very much like an athlete's journey. Only at the end when they're successful do people start asking you, how did you get here? How come you're so good and what's the secret? And, you know, sure, it's like 10 years of experience um, and trying hard and failing uh, and working through all those downs before you actually get to that high and people want to know how you got to where you got to. Can you Talk about a, a few examples of how communication with or amongst teammates, coaches, uh, opponents, administrators, recruiters, how that yeah. might apply. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think my favorite thing in my own business is to help uh, help students of the game understand how they can use that communication of the starting lineup in their lives. So often I'll have uh, a student athlete, like a university student, come up to me and I ask them how their year was and they say, oh, it wasn't so great. I ask why, it's usually the same answer. I didn't get the playing time I thought I deserved. Right, so they were sitting on the bench. Right, instead they, of yeah, exactly. Instead ball. of playing or not getting the minutes they deserved or they thought they deserved. And that's a great conversation to have because 
realistically, the, the starting lineup is a place where um, there's two perceptions involved. Uh, it's your own perception as the athlete. And then, of course, there's the coach's perception of where they are officially at and get to play at. Uh, very similar to in a job, thinking you're at a certain level, perhaps thinking you're going to get a raise or that promotion and not really understanding that your perspective might be different than your boss's. Right. There's some kind of gap, um, a misconception that you might be having. Uh, and that conversation piece is what I love to educate our staff with because, you know, just to be able to walk up to your coach and say, hey, I think I should be in the starting five where do you really rank me? And that be, takes guts. Yeah, it takes guts. And it, to be able to have that conversation is a, is a really tough thing. So, I mean, in our business, we actually challenge them to ask their boss on a very regular basis where they think they rank amongst their teammate uh, in the working environment. Wow. And see how they do. It's also a great conversation for a staff member who would like a raise right. or think they're being unfairly evaluated. Right. Um, so it, it's a really interesting conversation to have to be able to work your way up from the 12th player all the way to number one. And that in itself in sport is just that never ending cycle. Do you have of any stories of athletes who finally worked up the nerve to ask their their coach where they were ranked and how they could get ranked higher what they needed to do to improve their rank yeah i mean i i did it i went to uft and uh i it's funny i was recruited to go there and of course being a young naive 19 year old i thought i was like their only recruit right only to find you're the out. star yeah of course right they came to my house and of course i thought i was the star and nobody else could possibly be recruited <laughs> at the same time as me and i walk in on the first day and i see four other tall women, almost my height and, you know, uh, totally my position. And I completely lost my mind. Um, thinking, it's like the first day of work. Yeah. It's right? like, oh my God. This I'm a is, rock star. This is oh, crazy. there's other rock stars there's like here. four other women here uh, that are fighting for my spot. So um, yeah, definitely. I has spent that year fighting for that position. I wasn't a starter, but I remember, you know, going into my coach, I was a pretty shy introvert back then what i know it's insane i actually was never team captain i was not a vocal leader i had none of these skills i watched these people on my team have these skills and that learned communication only came after i started my business believe it or not but i did have a few moments where i would not tolerate that lack of communication and huh. it came in my second year so after a year of being a rookie and working my way onto the team and making sure i got some playing time worked really hard all summer and a couple of our veteran players had left and i thought i deserved to start right and um i had words with my coach and challenged uh, when she actually didn't start me in our opening season game and i it's funny because i'd never actually challenged an adult before uh, so I was shaking and I actually had a bit of a tantrum. <laughs> I actually refused when she wrote the starting lineup on the blackboard in the team change room. Uh, and I saw my name wasn't on there. I shut down. I was like, I can't believe this. I worked really hard. I'm better than these other people. I know I deserve this. I sat down on the bench and I refused to warm up. And she's like, what is your problem? <laughs> and I was like, I deserve to start and you know it. And she's like, I didn't think you needed that to be able to play. This other player needs that in her in her mind and i'm like wow the lessons yeah. you learned in that nanosecond ridiculous right? oh ridiculous gosh. and i and she's like what are you trying to tell me i'm like i don't know and she's like are you trying to tell me you can't perform unless you start i'm like that's exactly what i'm trying to tell you so i ended up starting i ended up getting my spot 
That so, game? That game. I got my spot that game. And it was never a, you know, I had to fight for that spot. I had to go in every single, honestly, like, I don't even know if it was almost every other day in my first year of as a rookie, like, what can I do to get more time? What can I do? I want more. So it was definitely, um, for some reason, I found my voice in that moment. Oh, oh, you're gutsy. I know. Crazy, right? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to communicate. I don't know that I'm so proud of having that tantrum, but in, in that moment, I definitely learned that being able to ask a question was important. So being able to have the guts to talk to the coach. And I was always amazed at some teammates of mine that I loved dearly that I knew they never got to see the floor. And I just, I kept saying, you know, why are you going in there? Why aren't you talking to her and asking what you can do to get more playing time? And their answer would be like, well, I already did that. I'm like, so do it again. They give up and they don't want to continue asking that question. Whereas others are going to keep going until they get what they want. Right. So my mind is spinning with questions that I could ask about all the learnings you had there and, and all the different things that could have happened. So some coaches may not be open to No, that, that. could have backfired really badly. What do you say to that? Uh, I think it was a real risk. I think she could have just sat me down and not played me, but I think she really loves to win. And um, I would say that I, I, loved, I loved my experience at uh, U of T, and I, I know she loved me, um, but you know she, she definitely loved other players as well, and yeah. probably a little bit more than me. Right. But she also needed things from me, and sometimes in sport, when your coach knows you can do something, they're willing to, to play you, to get right. what they need out of you. Right. Um, and right. I knew that. And you're also probably at the time about 19 years old. Yeah. And she probably understood there's certain levels of maturity. I think, I think she, in a way, liked the fact that I kind of fought for it because I was pretty meek um, hmm. when, I, when I first entered. I didn't really say a lot. I just, you know, worked hard, put my head down. Um, and it's rare, I think, to have athletes actually demand and put the effort in as well. So, but flipping this back to the coaching, there's a significant responsibility or onus on the coach, I would say even more so than the players, to communicate these things transparently and, as you said, consistently. Yeah, in an ideal world. Yeah. But, and that's the learning, right? Coaches are humans. And I tell my staff that all the time. They're just humans. And it took me well into my career to understand that because you hold a coach to such a light. Right. It doesn't matter what background you have. Your coach is like... God, right, and they have all the answers and the power to go with it. So, I mean, realistically, I mean, whether they have that information given to you, which is very rare because they're just human, you know, if you don't know to ask and they're not willing to share, that's where there can be some real problems and, you know, people get discouraged from playing team sports. So one of the lessons you're telling your staff who want to become coaches at elite camps, you're telling them to you know, take a little bit of the pressure off because you're human, but there are many expectations. And if you, if they're coaching a team, they should be transparent and open with the athletes, right? Absolutely. I want to ask you a question about some mistakes that coaches make, but I, I have a bit of a, a story that I think is worth noting here. I remember when I was starting to work as a professor teaching for the first time, and I was like a sponge. I was trying to get advice. I, I was very nervous. I, I love public speaking and even teaching, but I, I really wanted to do well and I wanted to be a good teacher. And so I was asking all of the successful professors. I got all sorts of advice, you know, do this, do this, do this. And I got one piece of advice that really stuck out. 
this one professor said, if someone tells you what you should do in the classroom, take it with a grain of salt because it really depends on your style. But if someone tells you what to not do, so whatever the don'ts are, she said, the don'ts are the things that you should take for, for the truth and the do's you should adapt to your style. And that really struck me as something that, as you said, I've actually applied to other contexts. The question I wanna ask you is, what are some of the mistakes that coaches often make when they're starting out? I think playing favorites is something that, uh you know, can happen quite often. Mm. Um, and I think it's human nature. It is human nature to have favorites. Um, but I think a big mistake that, uh, especially first time coaches don't understand is the impact that can have on the rest of the team right. and the culture right. that, of that team atmosphere that you're trying to create. Uh, and because we're all human and everybody has favorites, watch out for how you deal with your favorites. Um, on court and off court. I and I can imagine at work. Let's translate this to work. Yeah, so yeah, you're like, going to have don't, subordinates yeah. that you adore. Absolutely. And some that you maybe don't quite adore. There, there's a lot of messaging there. I know when I was, um, I was talking to one of my staff who had played for Carlton, one of the most winning teams in Canada, and you talked to the head coach, Dave Smart, about playing favorites and you know giving the all-stars certain things that other people, little bit of leeway that other players don't get. His philosophy is, well, he's the all-star and you know what? He deserves it. So when you're the all-star, maybe you'll get it. And that's a totally different way of, uh, of thinking and operating. Might not be the most successful way of coaching youth sport, but it seems to do him. He's got such a strong team culture that um, because his, you know, youngest and, you know, rookie players really look up to those all-star players, it's almost like an earned right, right, right. to get that. It's a part of the reward for yeah, working so hard. Yeah. Well. As long yeah. as, I guess, he's consistent with that. Back to your point about consistency. Yes, consistency is key. So I think, the, for me, the number one thing to destroy your ability to have a great year is a lack of consistency. Whatever your rules may be, it might just be one thing, like, you know, you gotta line up your bags when you walk into practice, or maybe there's no swearing on your team. Whatever, whatever your rules are, if you're not able to be consistent with everybody, that's tough. You really gotta pick your rules ahead of time, hmm. um, or at least try to. It's just that when you're not consistent, that is single-handedly uh, going to ruin your team. Do you have any stories of when you've either personally experienced, or maybe you've heard from other people second or third hand about coaches just failing even when they had the best intention i'm not talking about the guy who doesn't care that's not the story that we want to hear it's about right. the whether it's male or female coach going out there with the best of intentions i think i think 99 percent of coaches fail at their season because they don't win right like when you think about it a national championship team they're one out of many teams the rest of those teams fail i think it's measuring what it is you're going to be successful at i think that's the true measure because there can only be one winner of any championship you know i'm a seriously competitive athlete and i don't like losing in fact i threw away my silver medal in a double overtime national championship on tsn i threw it away i didn't want it um that sounds, took, that sounds familiar didn't some female hockey players do that in the last yeah, olympics I, I think so i didn't i wasn't public about it but um <laughs> I may have thrown it at the bottom of a closet wow. and not taken it out for 10 years until, you know, I got over that loss and uh, now it hangs in my office. But because, um, you know, I think when you think about how much, I mean, when I think about how much I learned from my sport, 
you know, that silver medal is a, a really big deal. Um, and it's not because I didn't win the gold. It's not, be, you know, I, when I think about the life lessons I took from my playing career at UFT, I mean, I won in so many ways. Right. Right. And I, I think when you're looking at, you know, um, what can you possibly, you know, do with all those losses? When you think about all the teams that lose, really the measure of success. And I don't want to sound hokey because I, I really love winning. I love winning and I hate losing. But the reality is, is most teams lose their season. There's one winner. So what else? I mean, as a coach, you really got to think about what else are you giving your athletes um, and try and maybe coach on purpose um, for that. In a generic sense, the ultimate measure of success as a coach is getting the best performance out of your athletes. I don't think it's the gold medal. <laughs> the best success you could probably have is when your athlete comes back to you later and said, you had a serious impact on my life. I needed wow, you at this time. It's even deeper than yeah, that. And yeah. yeah, you were there for me. Or, you know, you don't even know, like, I mean, coaches don't realize the impact they have. It can be uh, a player who is dealing with divorce in their family. And that was like the one safe space that they had. And it was consistent and there were rules and, you know, they may not have rules at home. It could be like, you know, I, I have stories of, you know, like I, if I didn't have the hardships I had at my, in my playing career, I would not be where I am today. You know, if I didn't, you know, I had, I had my coach and I thanked her many years later, like my mom was in a car accident and my entire team rallied around me and my coaches were around me during that time. And it was a really hard time. And I didn't know it then, but how meaningful that was to have other people in my life. So I think when you have players come up to you later as a coach, you actually do realize like your impact is, is so much more than just winning a game. There's a lot of stuff that coaches do that go unnoticed. Um, and sometimes never thanked for that I find um, later on kids will come back and, and let them know. So as you're talking about this, I'm, I'm thinking about two things. One is I think I have some people that I need to send thank yous to. Yeah. <laughs> Both coaches and teachers actually. And the other thing is I feel like there's a hierarchy for coaches. It's winning the games is at the bottom and then the next level up is getting the best performance out of your athletes and then the next level up is impacting the lives of the young athletes right yeah as players they don't want to hear any of that and as coaches they don't want to hear any of that but it funny because enough, it distracts them do it, you think it, it's too deep i oh. think it happens organically and if you flip that structure upside down it just happens it, it falls together uh. and realistically athletes learn the most from the worst parts of the sport you know, they learn from the trials and tribulations. I can use myself as an example. I never once led a team meeting or a team huddle. I was never named team captain, but I watched great players and good and bad and horrible and wonderful coaches all throughout my career and can say that I learned through seeing and experiencing. And only then when I was ready to go from introvert to more of an ambivert, that I can actually use some of those tools, but it was years later. So do you think that you had this implicit self-awareness before? Zero, nothing. You had zero. I had zero, I had nothing. I had one thing and it still stays with me and it was, I had a goal. Right, you had a desire to win. And I actually had a desire to be good at something. Ah. My desire to win, I always wanted to win, but I, I wanted to be successful. I think that was for me. And I know that's different than some athletes, but. I really wanted to be successful and then of course I wanted my team to win. I got, you know, really addicted to winning. Hmm. I happened to find myself on some very good teams, but 
for me when I was you just starting. You have to find yourself I once. Find myself really good once teams. You didn't earn teams. your way there. You just the, randomly. The height helped. The height helped. <laughs> height got me on the, the first few teams. But, uh, but I do find that um, I really, especially as a, as a young girl being six feet, six feet tall in, what is it, grade eight, I was really low self-esteem. And to be able to work you know, on a skill that I wasn't very good at, just trying basketball for the first time in grade nine and being able to see results, I, I became really addicted to that feeling of success. The more I communicated I want to get better, the more people were coming towards me to help. I still carried that with me. It was a very basic need to you know, have a goal, work hard to get it. It's very simple. So when people ask me in business now, you know, how did you do it? I go the same way I did it back in grade nine. I have a goal and I just keep working harder than everybody else around and me. And you sure do, I can tell that's you. That's it. I know you work extremely <laughs> hard. I was lucky to get this interview into her schedule. I want to ask you a question about managing peak performance. When I, when I read Life's a Sport and I was thinking about all of the lessons that can be concluded from different athletic experiences and then transferring them into life, um, I was thinking about the pregame pep talk. So this is relevant for all of us in cheerleading our coworkers, our subordinates, our kids, even ourselves. And it could be helping prepare our work team to go out and do a big presentation, right? Yeah. Or it could be helping our kids go and do well at a tryout and the conversation that you have with them privately in the car. Um, or maybe you're driving them to a big test that they're writing. Um, what advice or observations can you share for those of us who are doing what in sport would be called a pre-game pep talk? So when I started my business, I was finding myself having to do these pep talks and I was really bad at it. So I oh. thought I'd read a book about it. I laughed really hard when I got to the big point of the book. Their lesson was you find your magic number and you practice your speech that many times. And for me is nine. If I'm yep. going to talk to my staff, I will practice nine times before delivering something very meaningful and very important to any of my staff. So absolutely, when, I, when my staff ask me, hey, I wanna do a presentation, you know, what should I do? Can you help me prepare? I'm like, absolutely. I'm like, let's figure out your number and you're gonna practice this. And they're like, oh, that's awkward. I'm like, I know, it is awkward, but like in sport, <laughs> really to accomplish what you want in sport, you need to practice over and over and over again. Mm. And when you put it to them like that, and that's why I laugh so hard because this amazing book, which is like, you know, 300 pages long, the moral of the story was practice and figure <laughs> out your number funny. of times. That's funny. And it really is an effective way. And I remember I was doing something for the Ontario Basketball Association and it was important to, you know, be a little bit more eloquent. And since I'm not eloquent naturally, I found it really important to practice that because mm -hmm. I didn't want to miss a beat and I didn't want to read it off of a cue card. So for me, practicing it nine times, I just got it. Wow. Yeah. That's great. I actually am having a memory of um, being in my office at school and I had to give a presentation and I closed the door and I stood up and I pretended the wall in my small office was the audience mm -hmm. and I gave a presentation to the wall. Yeah, I, I've yeah. been in hotel rooms, my family's been on vacation and I would practice speeches by myself in the room like it's embarrassing, but you get over it. Yeah. It's wonderful to be able to understand the idea of practice through sport. Once they get over the idea of practicing in front of a mirror or mm -hmm. taping yourself and mm -hmm. trying to see what your body language is like, um, they understand because athletes understand practice. Do you have any general advice or other stories about the yeah, inspirational pep talk? I do. I, I, and I think like most business stories, the best ones are the ones that are true and are personal and are real. 
So I remember in our national championship final game, it was our second overtime. The most powerful speech ever was when my coach got down on one knee and, you know, what do you say to a group of girls who just played an, another overtime and you want to challenge them to try and get to that next level and win? And I'm like, I couldn't imagine what she was going to say to us. And, and also, you know is, that there's another coach doing the exact same thing on the, the other dressing side. dressing room yeah. across the hall. Absolutely. Right? So you're, oh, it's, it's wild. talk about so pressure. It's, it's crazy pressure. So what does she do? She gets down on one knee and she reaches into her bag. She's ruffling through and she pulls out a gold medal. Wow. And she goes, this was mine. Like however many years ago, this is why we're here. <sighs> and she's like, I want this for you. Go out and get it. Wow. So she really made it real. She really made it real. You know, so I, I think it's one of those things that um, when you can bring a personal story to connect to your athletes or to your coworkers, there's nothing more amazing to connect with your staff at work by giving them a relatable story about mm -hmm. your own struggle mm -hmm. and how to get there. To be somebody who that, you know, somebody just like them at one point. For me, it's really easy to relate to my staff because I was once an athlete. I was that 21 year old who had to give up her sport because she was injured and had yeah. to pivot and, and try something new. Yeah. Um, it's a relatable story. And, you know, I could probably match any story they have based on sport because of our similarities. But if you're in the business world and your team members need a pep talk, try to remember you know what it was like to be them um, and have a relatable story and you know if you can show a little bit of vulnerability I usually find it's a great connector mm. and if coaches who you hold at such a high level can come down and uh, remind you of what it was like for them when they were your age it's it's a really powerful tool that's great I'm gonna use that on my kids in the car yeah you can try it's the best way <laughs> it's the only way I can talk to my kids is I, through storytelling yeah I have to make that's sure it. I don't delve back into my past too much but um, you know, with the kids, they don't, they, yeah, they get tired sometimes of hearing, no. hearing the stories, but. But it's great that you mentioned that because the reality is, is anything I say to my own children, they don't want to hear it. They're like, I know, I get it. But if I tell them a story about a time where I was benched or a time where my coach yelled at me, um, they're way more receptive. They actually listen. That's an interesting point. You know, I've heard parents say that their kids don't want to hear anything about what happened to them. I wonder if the kids just are tired of hearing about all the parents' successes yeah. and they actually want to hear about some of the lessons they Absolutely. learned. Absolutely. They love that. I mean, it's complete. You can hear a pin drop when I talk about all my failures in my car. They don't want to hear about how great I was or that I won a medal. They don't want to hear that. They want to know how I lost and they want to know when a coach yelled at me or threw a chair at me or all those fun things that happened or when my teammates were rude or not nice. Uh, they want to hear about that. Yeah. Interesting. I never yeah. thought of that. Oh, yeah. They love it. So in our house, we have an acronym. It's WEWAC. And That's it fun. stands for when I was a kid. Cute. And whenever my husband or I start reminiscing about something, we have this, like all of us will say, stop WEWACing, stop WEWACing. <laughs> but I oh, wonder I if those. that would even happen if right. the story started from a point right. of vulnerability. That That's an interesting experiment. Yeah. I'm going to try it for sure. What are your thoughts on the old school tough coach versus the more modern congratulations for participating style coaching that seems to be gaining traction? I'm a little old school. You're so old school. I am old school. So I had two kinds of coaches. Um, I had a few, I had a number of coaches, but two stick out. 
I had one that was very old school, like yelled and screamed and I knew exactly where I stood, even if they were not nice words or things were being thrown at me. I, I remember that experience very well, but I loved him and he taught me a huge amount about um, how to be a better player, just skill-wise. Just a great coach. I really loved and enjoyed my time with him. And then I, I go to a different coach where the method of communication was ignoring you when you did something wrong, only high-fiving you when you did something well. Wow. So more of yeah. like a shunning experience. So I kind of had, I, I never really was coddled by this new generation of coaching where we got rewarded for participation. Yeah. That was never my Everyone generation. gets a trophy. Thanks yeah. for coming out. Yeah, no, I, I really, I don't think that helps us. This is more of my personal opinion. You know, I think there's a time and a place. I think there's age groups and different kinds of programs. I mean, right. our business caters to mostly grassroots kids, but I've never thought everybody deserves a trophy. I don't think that's a great lesson. I don't think in the working world, everybody gets a trophy. I find, to be honest with you, the general trend now um, is you know, that people are not doing that anymore. It, we it, have it's learned. starting to swing, yeah, swing back. Yeah, starting to swing back. I'm glad I asked you that because um, I was hoping that it would swing back. I feel like there's an equilibrium and importantly to your yeah. point, I think younger athletes, the more tangible rewards for everybody may work really yeah. well for younger athletes. But when your kids start saying to you, Mom, I got it. Look at this huge trophy I got, and I only went to two of the games. Yeah, my kids are at a swim school, and I remember the shock and horror of the swim director when my my son was five, and he didn't pass his swim badge, and they gave him a participation ribbon. I'm like, get that off my kid's report card right now. And I'm like, in front of my own kid, I'm like, I he does not deserve a ribbon. I'm like, he'll get his award when he finishes when he earns it his badge he doesn't need a ribbon he needs to know that he just needs to work on something and i'm okay with that i'm like are you okay with that little guy and he's like yeah i'm fine <laughs> he's like okay kind of like mom's crazy mom's, cray -cray. Mom's, mom's crazy um and the swim director of course you know is like okay here's another one um but yeah i, I didn't want my kid walking around celebrating not yeah not getting his badge and now when he got his badge he was super happy because he knew mm. he earned it he knew he earned that badge right. So right. I, I'm a big believer in no participation in ribbons. Sorry. Are, are there other trends that you're aware of that have been evolving over the decades in terms of coaching? So, it, you know, it went from kind of the old school tough guy to everyone's a, a winner and here's your trophy and maybe it's swinging back. But are there other contexts in which coaching is changing? Yeah, actually, it's funny you mention that because I, I just had this conversation with a high school coach who was having trouble getting teachers to volunteer their time. And he said the number one reason was because of parent communication and because they are aggressive and combative and mm. really um, they're advocating for their children and not allowing the children to advocate. And, you know, as an employer, I see this all the time. I see parents calling for job applications. I see parents calling for updates on their children. I see parents calling to resolve issues. The helicopter um, parents. Yeah, so we, the helicopter parents are knock on, they're full force. Um, they're really, really causing problems for kids in the workforce that are trying to enter and stay in. I can't tell you the number of conversations I have with parents. Like I wanna say at least 100 conversations every year about uh, parents calling and trying to advocate for their kids who are my staff. So imagine as a high school coach, you know, you're volunteering your time and then you're getting berated for lack of playing time mm. or they don't agree with your philosophy, you know, in, a, in an environment in Canada where coaches are volunteering their time, you're not going to get a lot of people wanting to volunteer. 
Even if you're paid. Yeah, even if you're paid. But at least you're paid. These people are volunteering their time and they're getting a lot of flack from these helicopter parents. And that's a big trend that I know is tough. You know, you got parents advocating for their kids in school with their professors. We have to teach these young people how to advocate for themselves. And, you know, sport is a great way. If you have a problem with your coach, as young as I would say 10 years old, you can teach your child how to go to your coach and say, hey, coach, you know, I'm not getting the playing time that I want. What can I do to get better? Right. So, and, uh, and back to the perspective of a coach, as I said, whether they're paid or whether they're volunteer, it's, it's becoming so much less enjoyable. What used to be a supporting role as a parent has become this ridiculous advocacy, yeah. that selfish advocacy, I guess, for their child. The parent impact on coaches is, is stressful. It's a, it's a big job, and I, I don't think parents respect that enough, but I also think they're really tough on coaches. And coaches are just simply not trained on how to deal with that and how to tell the parents and how to coach the parents because believe it or not, parents need coaching. Right. Even with us, like if a parent calls and asks about their child, it's not about saying you're a bad parent, stop helicopter parenting. It's more about educating and saying, you know, your child will need to advocate for themselves in the future. Let's start teaching him how to do it now while he's young. Great. That's go a back, great message. Yeah, go back home and coach your child to call me and ask me these questions. So Stephanie, you're coaching athletes, you're coaching your staff, and you're coaching the athletes' parents, (laughs) and you're coaching the staff's parents. Yes, yes, it's a full circle job, and you know what? And you're also coaching your kids and your husband. No, 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 the kids and the husband don't actually listen to me. I actually, what's funny is, I know that, I know they won't listen to me, so I actually, for my own kids, will ask their coaches to coach them. Yeah. And I will go to my coaches for advice on my own kids because I don't always see it from their perspective. Well, that's a great lesson for parents yeah. too, right? You, yeah. have a, you have another set of eyes and yeah. you actually have another communication opportunity yeah. to your child. Yeah, and I'm trying to use my village wow. because the reality is the village is what helps your child grow. Because right. parents, you know, in their children's eyes might not know everything, right? Oh, so. nicely put. Okay, I'm going to ask you my five rapid-fire questions now okay. that I ask every okay. guest. Okay. Okay. First question is, what are your pet peeves? My pet peeves? People not willing to put in the work. People not willing to put in the work. Okay. So lazy people. People that want the rewards but not the work. Okay. What type of learner are you? Visual? visual. Auditory? Can that's it wow it. before that's I even it. come up that's with the list? That's the only kind of learning I can do. I'm a really? complete visual learner. But the funny thing is, is only this year I have been confident enough to tell every single person that I need a visual learning environment. So if somebody's trying to tell me something, I'm like, I'm a visual learner. I can't learn like this. You need to, mm. you need to show me. Third question, introvert or extrovert? Intro, well, ambivert. Sorry, ambivert. I am an introvert by nature and a trained ambivert. Oh. So I can switch. So I can, I can work a room, but I'm exhausted afterwards. But that's the definition of an introvert. Um, but but I you've can, trained yourself to I've, get over I've the trained, shyness. Yeah, I've, I've trained myself whereas when I was younger, I would never go to a party okay. um, or I would never want to speak to people. I'd be happy to stand in a corner and now I can strategically do whatever I want. You're a functional introvert. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. That's right. Okay. Fourth question, communication preference for personal conversation. Would your go-to be text? Email, phone, what would it be? It'd be email. Email. I'm really good on email. Why email? 
I think because I'm really forgetful. So with texting, it just it gets pushed down to the bottom. Right. If you phone me, I'll forget to check if my voicemail. But on email, I will only erase if I've cleared it. Last rapid fire question. Podcast or blog or email newsletter that you recommend the most? I know what you're going to say. What podcast do you recommend the most, Stephanie? You think I'm going to say Tim Ferriss, which he is like honestly tied with Jason Gaynard. Okay. With Mastermind Talks. Okay. But yes, those two are uh, definitely my, my top two. They're phenomenal. They're just phenomenal for different reasons. Right. Um, but yeah, they're both amazing. I agree. And you can pick and choose the yeah. topics, of yeah. course, that you're going to spend very the different. time with. They're so different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're almost done here. Back to coaching. Is there anything else you want to add about coaching? Um, I think people are scared to coach. I think it's a big job. When people want to coach for the right reasons, they're the best coaches. And it's, it's, I think if coaches can remember that kids learn more from the ups and downs than the wins, if you can remember to have a few important rules and be consistent, you're going to have impact if you care. Okay. And if you can show kids you care by showing up every single week and just doing your best, they will likely learn either because of you or in spite of you. It doesn't really matter. Um, it's great to have coaches in sport. Well, Stephanie, I can say, honestly, I think your staff and your athletes are very lucky to have you coaching them. And I thank you very much for your time. You are welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stephanie Rudnick as much as I did. Can you believe that a coach threw a chair at her? Or that she lost the championships in overtime and hid her silver medal for years? I love her story about taking the risk to tell her coach that she deserved to be a starter. I have a feeling that was a turning point in her life, never mind in her basketball career. A few pointers that Stephanie shared. Leave your ego out of coaching. Be consistent don't play favorites, and don't hesitate to share stories about your defeats. Somehow, these are the engaging stories. Don't forget, please go to talkabouttalk.com and sign up for the email newsletter. I promise I have lots of interesting facts and figures to share with you about coaching. For starters, can you guess what the highest paid coach in the world is making? In 2019, how about $24 million? That's coach Pep Guardiola, head coach of the Manchester City football team. I have lots to share about coaching philosophy and more. Now, and always, I thank you so much for listening. I would love to hear what you think about this episode, or, of course, if you have ideas for future episode topics. There are so many ways to connect. You can go to our website at talkabouttalk.com, or you can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. You can email me at andrea at talkabouttalk.com. One last thing, if you have a moment, whatever podcast platform you're using, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever, I would really appreciate it if you would take a few seconds to rate this podcast so you can help us get some traction. Thank you so much and talk soon.